And I don't know about you, but I think in a lot of ways relationships are becoming increasingly superficial. And they become increasingly superficial because we've become increasingly dependent on Facebook <laughs> and Twitter um, and email, but mainly Facebook. Uh, and what tends to happen is you get to know each other and you get to learn about what's going on in each other's lives, not because you spent time uh, together, but because you scrolled your, your Facebook wall and it came up in your feed. Um, so people are now breaking up and starting relationships via Facebook. Um, but even, you know, case in point, my own family and my extended family, one of my cousins has got serious uh, cancer um, and it's, you know, she's been given only a few months to live. But I, the first way I found out about that was actually through Facebook. Um, now, I'm, I'm not saying that because she was in any way insensitive. It's just they put together a support page uh, and I hadn't caught up because we're not an overly close family in terms of our cousins because we're all over Australia. She's in Perth. Half of us are in, well, most of us are in Perth. Some of us are in Sydney and some in Queensland. So we're everywhere. But Facebook dominates our relationships and as a result, we don't really have connected community. Is that okay? You with me there? Now, Facebook is kind of a manifestation. It's a symptom of a bigger, bigger problem. Like, it's not all negative. Obviously, there's a lot of good comes out of it as well. But this breakdown of relationships is in many ways a fault of individualism. And individualism is just rampant in our society today. The most important person in the world, you. You all heard the insurance ad. Like, what a lie. <laughs> if they're going to lie to you in the ad, do you think they're going <laughs> to give you a good product? <laughs> question that I always ask. If you're going to lie to me about that, what else are you going to lie to me about? Because that's not true. I am not the most important in the world, person in the world, just for the record. Um, and neither are you. Christ is. Fair enough? He's at the centre of it all. And, but we have this whole idea of individualism. Now the word individual literally means undivided one. It's a bizarre thing to call someone, isn't it? You know, you're at school and, oh, aren't you an intelligent individual? An intelligent undivided one. It's a bizarre name. Just think about it for a minute. Calling each other individuals, undivided ones. It's just, it's a funny term. I don't know why, how it became, well, I want to talk a little bit about how it did, but I just think it's bizarre that we use it. And I challenge that. If you're used to using the, calling someone an individual, I challenge you to change it because they're not an individual, they're a person. They're a person. And people are made for relationship. Individuals are just undivided things. Does it make sense? So a little definition of individualism. Individualism is the moral stance, political philosophy, ideology or social outwork that emphasises the moral worth of the individual. Individualists promote the exercise of one's goals and desires and so value ind in independence and self-reliance and advocate that interests of the individual should achieve precedence over the state or social group while opposing external interference from one's own interests by society or institutions such as government. Now, the idea that a person is important is not a problem. It's a good thing. Every person is fundamentally important and every person, every human being around the world is worth fighting for and is worth saving and is worth having a relationship with. But when we're so obsessed with ourselves that it's to the expense of everyone else, that's where it becomes a problem. Um, a couple of quotes from a fellow called um, Taylor Marshall who's done some work on this, he says, the Enlightenment posi um, posited that the nation is divisible. You can break nations up. The church is divisible. The city is divisible. The town is divisible. The family unit is divisible. Even marriages were divisible. However, the person is not. He or she is triumphantly individual. 
So this whole concept of individualism has come from the fact that everything that was concrete had broken down. Nations fell apart. Um, you know, th this whole concept of individualism came out after the Reformation. So you had the church splitting and dividing, um, you know, Luther in Germany, but you also had uh, King Henry VIII in Britain and splitting the thing up. So you could split that. Marriages were falling apart. King Henry VIII was a perfect example of that with his great collection of wives. Um, but he chose himself and his own needs and his own wants over the church and over his nation. And as a result, he just pillaged literally hundreds of churches around England um, because he just wanted to get rid of all the Catholic churches and just put Anglican churches there, and that's what he did. You can go and see all the ruins there. But all of that came from the fact that his needs and his desire to marry another woman was more important than the church and the nation. It's individualism. Can you see that? And so we've kind of taken a hold of this. Um, he goes further. He says, contrast individual with the word person. The term comes from the Latin uh, personare, meaning to sound through. It refers to a mask or a face and the act of speaking to others. The term person is relational, and this is why Christian theology refers to the three persons of the Holy Trinity as three divine persons and not God in three individuals. So we're persons. Now the problem with this individualism is that it's taught us that everything is about me, and because we're so me-focused, it has an impact on how we carry out our ethics, our biblical interpretation, our character, our families, and our church. So just think about that for a minute. How does it change our ethics? Well, this is what it does, right? If I'm not happy in my relationship with my wife, and I find someone else that I think is more beautiful and that I would prefer to be with and is more pleasing to me, it means that I can divorce my wife and I can go and marry another one. It's me choosing my own will over a marriage, which is two persons, and over the whole institution of marriage. And so our ethics get driven by what we as an individual want rather than what's right. And this is happening with the push for gay marriage in our nation. It's also happening with abortion laws that con continue. You know, the, my right to not have a child is more important than my child's right to live. That's the height of individualism. That's the height of my will is more important than anyone else's and I'm prepared to take a life for it. That's scary, isn't it? So it's ruining our ethics, but also our biblical interpretation. We no longer ask the question, what does the Bible mean or what does the Bible say on it? But we often ask, well, what does that mean to me? And what does that mean to me is a very subjective question, isn't it? Does it suit me? Does it, do I like it? Does it make me feel good? Can I just grab this piece of scripture and just apply it to my life and just grab it out of its context? Doesn't matter who you know, the author is speaking to, doesn't matter what context he's speaking in, I just grab those words and I apply them to my life. And we've all seen people do that. Yep. Uh, the most common one is even, uh, you know, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and plans to prosper you. Yeah? You know the verse, Jeremiah 29? All familiar with that? Who's Jeremiah talking to? Israel. Is it, a, is it an individual? It's a nation, isn't it? So how does that verse apply to us today? Does that mean I can go, well, I know the plans that God has for me? No, it's us. It's his people. It's his church. It's his kingdom. Because who are the people of God today? The people of God are his church. I'm not the people of God. I'm one of them. Can you see that? And so our individualism has even moved the way that we understand the Bible. It teaches us character. We live for ourselves. We make decisions about ourselves. It has an impact on the family. Because we're not thinking about children in terms of children are of intrinsic value and God has called us to 
to create children. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and that children are, are worthy and, and are powerful and just change the world. We think, how many do I want? Does it suit me? Does it make me comfortable? And so our whole mindset sometimes is having children to suit my needs rather than because they're of intrinsic value and that God is part of the creative process. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's just individualism has changed so much of what we do. And the same thing happens with church. I don't like this church. Well, the music style doesn't suit me. Or he's a Calvinist and I'm an Arminianist. Or, you know what I mean? I don't like what that preacher said, so I'm going to find another church. And so we, we split and we split and we split because we're individualists and we look for a church that suits us rather than one that will challenge us and one that we're called to and rather than one that we can sow into. Because we're not thinking about church, about what can I bring to this community, but what can this community give to me? Can you see that? I challenge you with that thought. This is a great church, but it needs people that are willing to sow into it and say, hey, I'm here to see God's kingdom come through the project. I'm not here just to sit here like a soak and just lap up all good preaching. Do you know what I mean? Because that's the whole point of church. It's not just about a great sermon or a great song uh, service. It's about community and people coming together to do discipleship together and bring disciples in. Amen? Cool. So I want to challenge individualism. Think about how it's affected your life and what it's done to change the way you think. Now, why is it that community is so important? God says to us, he says in Genesis, let us make mankind in our image. Not my image, but our image. Why do we say our image? Because God is community. God's not an individual. It's not one. We're not Muslim. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because there is perfect community within the Godhead, he creates us for community. It's the fundamental difference between um, Christianity and every other religion is that we have God as Trinity. And the fact that God is Trinity makes him self-sufficient because he doesn't need us to love because there's love within the Godhead. Every other, uh, and an individual God, a Unitarian God, is a God that's dependent on creation to be loving because you can't love without an object. Can you see that? And so because God is Trinity and he creates us in our image, it's no wonder then that after he makes Adam, he says it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because God's not alone. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what does he do? But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, of course, a mum and a dad, a husband and a wife, they don't just stay as two because God is not two. God is Trinity. So the love between a husband and a wife creates children. And so you have your mum and dad and children. And so the family is actually the image of God on you. Can you see that? It's one of the most beautiful and powerful illustrations of the Holy Trinity is the family. You all know the Zondergel family. We know Pete and Ange and his four boys. They're all Zondergels. They're all one, but they're all different. And they bring something different to the table. They have different roles, but they're all one. And so because God is community, 
He creates us for community and he creates us with the innate ability to procreate and to have that same image of God in our own immediate families. And it's just incredibly beautiful. It's just a gift. Uh, and for those of you that are married and have children, you'll know what an incredible blessing that is. Uh, and also how much it purges our character and challenges us and changes us and conforms us to the likeness of Christ because there's nothing that uh, pushes your selfish buttons more than children. And all the parents said, Amen. <laughs> i got two kids. Uh, my oldest has just turned two. Um, so I'm learning all about selflessness at the moment. And uh, I've got a lot more to learn. <laughs> so, working on it. So this whole idea of community and you being created for community doesn't just stop at creation. It's right through the Bible. And so you notice if you follow the, the, you know, the historical narrative of Abraham and the people of Israel, you get to Moses and you get the law. And here's Moses with a million odd people in the desert and he goes up Mount Sinai and God gives him these ten instructions. And you'll find that six of the ten, the first four are focused about your relationship with God vertically, but the next six are all about relationship. They're all about helping you and I to live into community. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land uh, the Lord your God is giving. And all the parents went, yeah, see what that guy said. But that's about community, isn't it? That's about families operating well and functioning well because when children honour their parents, the family is blessed. You shall not murder. It's pretty hard to have a healthy community if people killing each other. It tends to get in the way a bit. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. It ruins community. Adultery ruins marriages, it ruins families and it ruins community. And often people find themselves outside of community because of, that, because of what's going on, especially when they're unrepentant. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You'll find that when people lie about you, you struggle to be in community with them. <laughs> Fair enough. You shall not covet your neighbour's house or, or your neighbour's wife uh, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or his car or his motorbike or his house or whatever else he might own. You find that coveting again ruins community. Does that make sense? So all this law is all around community. Hang on, I've gone the wrong way. But then we come to the New Testament. You say, well, that's all Old Testament. How does that apply in the New Testament? Well, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. And again, his Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't take anything away from that. He actually goes deeper and he drives it home harder. It's not just enough to say, you shall not murder. But now it's even what's going on in your brain. Are you thinking thoughts about someone that are negative? Are you thinking hateful thoughts? Do you wish you could kill someone? But you know you're not going to because you don't want to go to prison. But you'd be happy if they were dead. You're that angry with someone, you're thinking, man, I'd love to kill them, but, you know, I'll just have nothing to do with them instead. <laughs> then they're, they're almost dead. They'll be dead to me. Jesus says that is not enough. Why? Because it ruins community. Are you getting the point here? It's, it's a little bit tedious because it just keeps on going. Again, Jesus goes further. If, if we're thinking lustful thoughts about um, other women, we're committing adultery, divorce. It breaks down community. Oaths, again, you know, this is a whole false testimony thing. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Young adults, if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're going to be somewhere at, at 6pm, show up at 6pm. <laughs> Alright, as someone who's in charge of young adults at City Life, I could pull my hair out with the, uh, the lack of commitment, the commitment phobia that, that our age group of sort of 17 to 30 have, because it's all about them. Oh, yeah, I'll see how I go. You know, set up an event. Facebook's even wired for individualism. You can write maybe. <laughs> so, I don't want to lock myself in. You know, a better option might come up. 
Nothing more frustrating to a pastor. You're trying to get people involved and people discipling each other, but they're not sure because, you know, Fast and the Fury 6 is showing on uh, Saturday night and we're not sure if a few mates are going to it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's just a whole continual problem. May your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to commit, commit. If you're going to get married, marry and stay married. If you're going to make these vows, commit to them. It's all about relationship. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's about relationship. Turn the other cheek. Love for your enemies. Why? Because you can build relationship with enemies when you love them. It's all about relationship. Now have a look at Jesus' example here, right? How does he do this? How does he live out the Sermon on the Mount? Is he just tell everybody that it's good to be in community and then he just goes and does nothing and then comes back? You see, Jesus, if we just had his teaching right, he could very well have spent all his time on his own in a little house somewhere just meditating, just being with God, preparing his next sermon and then going out to the crowds, doing a big sermon to the crowds and then going back and being on his own to prepare the next one and just downloading from God. And some people think that sounds like a very holy thing to do, you know, I just spend time with God all week and then I come out and preach on Sunday and man, my messages are powerful but then I go back and I prepare for the next one. But is that what Jesus does? No. Not at all, because he's not just about delivering information. He's not just about teaching, he's about community. So he has his three. He has Peter, James and John that are like his inner circle that go almost everywhere with him. And in a sense, you have that here with with, uh, Pete and Nathan and Diff that connect together as a three. And then he has his 12. He calls 12 disciples, so he calls nine more that are kind of his own small group. And what does he do with them? He doesn't just sit there and and download, but he brings them everywhere. He disciples them. He spends time with them. He does life with them. He goes through the hard times and the good times with them. He lives and breathes with these guys for three years. He's sowing into them. You see, Jesus could have just taught, but it was his disciples that saw the church grow. When Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, Peter's sermon hadn't happened. Pentecost hadn't happened. The church was not 3,000 strong. You had about 500 people there that were serious and you had these 12 disciples and the whole thing hadn't happened except for what Jesus sowed into these people and then he does what needs to be done so that these disciples can go and make a difference and so Jesus' own example is not one of solitude and teaching, it's one of community, it's one of small groups. Is that okay? Some of you are thinking, oh I just find a whole cell group thing a bit tedious in church, do I have to go to a group, you know, Jesus did. You want to be like him? So Jesus has these small groups and he grows these people spiritually. Now, the early church happens, right? So Pentecost happens, you know, 50 days after the cross. Uh, Peter preaches his sermon. 3,000 are added to their number that day. And have a look at this little, you know, few verses about the early church. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. Sometimes we focus all on teaching, teaching, teaching. Let's get the right information. Let's make sure that we're biblically sound. But is there fellowship? Is there people connecting with people or is it all just doctrine? Are we doctrine download or are we actually loving each other? And we need both. We want to be true, we want to be true to the word, but we need relationship, we need fellowship. The breaking of bread, they shared in communion and they would pray together. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another. Uh, who had in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour 
of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now look, every day they continue to meet together in their homes and in the temple courts. This is not a community that just comes together once a week and goes, oh, isn't it great that we've all found Jesus? This is a community that does life together, that is connected deeply in each other's homes, in the temple, everywhere they go. This community is relationship. You're getting the point? Coming through. In a sense, the school is an incredible example of the early church environment because you've got, you know, six, seven hundred kids that are coming together every day. They're, they're teaching, there's fellowship, there's prayer, there's the breaking of bread. How good is that? And so a Christian school can be a beautiful example of the early church if it's led well, which I know this one is. So a couple more scriptures around community. Obviously, there's a lot of New Testament scriptures around relationship. And just to pick a few up, it's very difficult to do these if you're not living in community. It fascinates me how many Christians are anti-church and not going to church. Does everyone know someone who's like, I used to go to church and I'm still a Christian, I just don't go now? You know those people? Well, what are they doing? Have they not read the book? Are they not reading the same book as us? Like, it's like saying to Jesus, you know, I really love your head, but I hate your body. Which most women don't appreciate if you say that, you know. <laughs> it's rude. Because, the, because Christ is not just this man, but Christ is his church. The church is his body on earth. And when we separate ourselves from the body, we're not getting the life that comes through the head. You know what I mean? If I cut my finger right off right now, it can live on its own for maybe a few hours. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But if I don't get my finger put back onto my hand in a quick hurry, it's going to die. Why? Because it needs the body for sustenance. And the same is true of every Christian. You can separate and isolate yourself and go, I'm just going to do my own thing and I'm still a Christian. But what happens is you've severed yourself from the body and people slowly die. It's not a quick process. You don't chop it off and go, oh, it's dead. Oh, no, no, I'm still walking. And it's like five years later, ten years later, yeah, now they've lost the plot. And I've seen that so many times. Because someone got a bee in their bonnet, someone said something at church, or someone did something, and it's all about church. And it's not even the church that hurts people, it's the people in it, because the people are the church, right? And what does Jesus teach about forgiveness? <laughs> so I just encourage you, if you know people like that, Challenge them in a loving, gracious, bib counselling sort of a way, you know. Because <laughs> it's just, what are you doing? Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. How can we stir one another up if we're isolated from each other? How can we stir one another up if it's just the guy up the front who's doing all the telling? That's not one another, that's just one person stirring. It's not mutual. 1 Thessalonians, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Matthew 18, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. We actually need each other. We're called to meet together. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. You don't all have to agree, but you have to hang out in order to get sharpened. Ephesians 4, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part of the is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. A couple more. How did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house? They're meeting from house to house. And every day in the temple courts from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. So it's not just the case of the Sunday morning. So what does it all mean? What's the practical application for what I'm sharing this morning? 
Now, I know because I've been around churches long enough that this church will grow on the basis of the quality of, of the preaching that happens because Peter is a jolly good preacher and most of you know that. Uh, he's, well, you know, he's well prepared, he thinks through, he's got a great uh, presentation, he's great with data. He's a good communicator, right? And so this church can grow just on the grounds that people want a good sermon. Do you know what I mean? But if you just grow a church around a good uh, sermon or a good preacher or a good celebration on a Sunday, you are building something that's very thin because it's dependent on this one guy at the front. And if Peter has a bad day or he has a bad week or he's in trouble because he's so overloaded because he's doing two master subjects, working full-time, got four kids, uh, and he just needs time out, what happens? Are we a community, or are we just guys gathering around a teacher? And so I want to challenge us this morning that no healthy church can be grown, should be grown, just around the quality of what happens on a Sunday. It needs to have community because Jesus calls us to community. He calls us to meet together. And what will happen, right, is you have start as a small church, everyone knows everyone and it's great and we all feel cosy and isn't this exciting what God's doing and it's starting to grow and everybody knows, so it's good, right? But there's going to come a stage where this church is going to be more than 300 people, you're going to get to 500 people one day and you're going to come in one day and you're going to go, oh, I just, you know, I remember when we used to meet at the school and, you know, it was only sort of 80, 100 people and we all knew each other and it was just cosy and it was down to earth and, you know, you, you knew everyone. And what we've done is we've forgotten that God wants his church to grow and church is not about us, it's about everyone and that we're called to get discipled not on a Sunday morning but in our small groups. And if we don't get groups happening and if you're not connected into a small group, you will eventually become uncomfortable in this church as it grows because you're not connected in. Can you see that? So I want to encourage us today that, and I know Peter's big on this and I know you guys, are groups are a central part of your church but as this church grows, it is essential that you get in a group and that you're connected with it because you need community. Amen? And the groups will actually become the building block of this church because as what happens on a Sunday grows, our groups grow and people don't feel isolated and they don't feel alone because they're connected to a group within the church. Is that cool? Last point on the importance of groups is this. Uh, Three and a half years ago, I had a motorcycle accident. I broke my back and my pelvis, and it was a great big mess. And I was in hospital for three weeks, had a big operation, and all of that. Right now, the best pastoral care that I got in that time was not I rang the pa- a pastor up and said, "Hey, man, I'm in hospital, and I've got a broken hip. Can you come and pray for me?" Pastors did come and visit, and they were, that was great, and they did pray for me. But what had real meaning? was the people that were in my life that I had community with, that I had relationship with, that came and got around me. It was my wife, it was my fiancé at the time, but it was great friends. It was like Nathan, who you heard saying, to, you know, Nathan, his brother Wes, uh, it was Brad. It was the people that I've done life with for a long time that came around and got around my bed and said, hey, how are you going, and, and stood with me at that time. And so the power of groups is that your life might be running really well right now and it's all fine, right? But if you're not connected with other people and your life falls apart you're going to get isolated and you're going to feel lonely. And I had I not had those people in my life and that group that it was connected to and then I was in this situation where I'm lying in a hospital bed, I would have felt very lonely, very alone. And I don't know if you spend any time in hospital, it's just the worst. <laughs> just looking at a hospital roof for three weeks is not my idea of a good time. Uh, you couldn't see the sun, couldn't get out anywhere. It was just miserable, do you know what I mean? And so had it not been for those people in my life, it would have been very difficult. So I want to encourage you, you need community, we need people to get around us, 
not just our immediate family, but beyond that. Because God is community and he's called us to community. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the project. I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you for the way it's growing. I thank you for the people that you've placed here. I thank you for for Pete and the team, for Diff and Nathan. God, I pray for your blessing on them this morning, that you'd pour out your grace and love on them. I pray especially for Peter as he's so overloaded at the moment. God, you would just equip him, that you would empower him, that you would just... uh, give grace to his time, Father, that he would have more time than he expects, even though there's so many things on his plate. I pray for your blessing on this church and God, that every individual that walks into these doors would get connected in community, would find a small group, that there would be real, authentic relationships that happen in this church that grow and that help people to be discipled. Father, I pray that this church would be like a new community of believers like Acts chapter 2, And that, Father, every person would be conformed to the likeness of Christ through relationship with others. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for your time.